It's always a joy, and I mean that, joy to welcome Matt Merriam to us. Uh, I think Matt came here as a, a youth worker connected to Lynx and Swim in those days. Yeah, about the same time as we came to Great Parks, which is 15, 16 years ago now. You don't look a day older. Yeah. What I mean is you don't look a day older than you did yesterday. I didn't finish the sentence. <laughs> But it's great to have him with us, um, uh, for those of us that have seen him uh, mature over the years. It's been a difficult week for Matt this week. Uh, those of you that may have received his, his emails and his prayer chain, um, but uh, he's still with us, and uh, he's going to bring the Lord's message to us this morning. Thank you, Matt. Good morning. Can I just take um, two minutes of your time before we get started? And <clears throat> as Ray said, when I first moved to Paynton, 2003, I think that was, so quite a few years ago, um, I was training with an organization called Southwest Youth Ministries that were kind of training me while I did youth work here. Um, I now am employed by them a couple of days a week. Um, and uh, Southwest Youth Ministries places children's and youth workers across the Southwest in churches and schools or projects while they provide training for them. We now have about 65 trainees placed across the Southwest. Last year, those 65 trainees um, engaged with around about 20,000 children and young people from Cornwall to Dorset, up past Bristol and Wiltshire. So um, they're doing an incredible work, um, and we're constantly looking for more, more people interested in spending some time training with us, spending some time investing in children and young people, whether that's in their home church where they are or whether that's moving to a different project or placement somewhere else. So I've brought along with me today um, some of our prospectuses. So if you know somebody who you know, might have a bit of call on their life for a bit of ministry or might actually could just really value a year of um, the theological training is really, really good and the transformation that happens in people's lives going through this year of, of focusing on their relationship with God and investing in children and young people is really, really fantastic. So if you know anybody who might be interested, come and have a chat to me. I'd be happy to send some things on. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. We will read this and then we'll pray. Matthew chapter 17, we're in verse 14. When they came to the crowd... A man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. 
And the disciples were filled with grief. Let's just pray as we come to this time to hearing what it is that through this slightly surreal passage, we don't really deal with demonic possession all that much these days, at least in this part of the world. So this feels a bit strange and surreal and from a different time and place. So let's just take a moment to to pray and ask that God would somehow speak to us through this this morning. Father, you promised us that the Holy Spirit would teach us and guide us in all things. And so we just submit ourselves to him this morning and ask that he would do just that. That to each of us, with wherever we're at and whatever we're going through and whatever life looks like, whatever our beliefs, God, that you would meet with us, that you would progress us on, that you would speak something that would encourage and inspire And lift us up into being the people that you made us to be. We pray this because of Christ. Amen. I can't really, I know I've told this story before, but I can't really read these words about prayers that move mountains. Faith that can move mountains without sharing a bit of Claire and my story in terms of our oldest daughter, Annabelle, who is the taller one with straighter hair that ran off a few moments ago. We were only a few weeks into the pregnancy and on a Sunday morning not too different from this one. Uh, my wife Claire had, had quite severe bleeding. It was our second pregnancy. Uh, first one hadn't ended so well. So immediately we were concerned about what was going on. Uh, but being the only leaders in our church, we kind of, I guess, did the British thing and gritted our teeth and carried on through that morning, although we shared with people and they prayed for us and and we sang and worshipped and and did all of that and then after that went to hospital. At which point, after a while being there, the doctors said to us, look, we're going to try and get a sonographer in, um, but we want you to know that with how much blood that's been lost, it's it's not looking good. So we're we're just making sure that there's nothing else really going on and and so we do need to check, but you just need to be prepared that it's not going to be good news. And as the doctor left, my wife Claire just had a real sense from God that he needed us, wanted us, was inviting us to pray a mountain-moving prayer. And with hardly any faith at all, and I mean that with all sincerity, after the loss that we'd already faced, with hardly any faith at all, we knelt by the side of that bed and just asked God to restore the life of that baby. And I will never forget the moment of her little heartbeat flashing up on that screen like a disco ball inside of Claire's womb. And some eight years later, she is still a constant joy to us. Now, what's hard about those stories is as though they're, you know, for me, that that fills me with with joy and celebration and praise. and, And maybe for a lot of you, it does as well. But if we're honest, it also drags up some of the what could have been's. And what didn't happen, it it drags up. I think whenever we hear stories of God answering prayer and doing miraculous things, we think, oh, yeah, you know, that's great, Matt. You know, I'm, I'm so pleased for you. But my prayer wasn't answered. My my need wasn't met. I'm sitting here and grieving or I'm sitting here hurting. I'm sitting here broken. I'm sitting here ill. I'm sitting here alone. And for some reason, these these stories that are meant to be spaces of celebration and praise and joy often actually end up doing some of the opposite for some of us, where they can drag up so easily some of the things that 
didn't happen. The prayers that we at least feel we didn't see answered. And I just want to kind of start out this morning by saying, you know, that's not, obviously not my intention in sharing that story. I'm not sharing it in some sort of boastful or bragging way. I had nothing to do with her rescue that day. That was entirely God. And I think the same can be said here as well as, as we look at Matthew in this story. These, these stories that we find here are not meant to, to highlight the things that God isn't doing for us. You know, when we come across Jesus doing something incredibly miraculous, it's not trying to rub our own wounds in our face. But instead, Jesus, and I think Matthew as well in writing this, are daring us to dream of what the kingdom of God can really be. The impact it can really have in people's life. Just what it was that Jesus established in those short few years on this earth. And it raises this question of expectancy. What is it that we expect the kingdom of God to do? And and if we were to, to tear apart Matthew's gospel, we would see that this is the place that he's kind of built towards. Because... First century writers didn't write history like we write history. When we, when we sit down to write history, we kind of collate all the chronological events and we put them in a nice, neat, logical order where it goes from one thing to the next. People in the first century didn't really write history like that. They wrote history differently, often with agendas, agendas that to us feel perhaps a little bit misleading or wrong because we just want somebody to tell us all the facts. But their form of history telling was much more interpretive. They were telling you the facts, but with an attempt to point out particular things about Jesus, about his life, about what it was that he came to accomplish. So if we had the time to tear apart Matthew, which we obviously don't this morning, but you would see that in the first three chapters, Matthew takes time trying to demonstrate the the Old Testament ties to Jesus, trying to demonstrate that Jesus is a bit like Moses. And actually, a lot of Matthew's gospel is laid out trying to point that out. Um, Jesus has five main sermons throughout the book of Matthew, just like Moses wrote five main books. Numerous times throughout the gospel, Matthew tells us that Jesus comes down off a mountain to deal with the situation, just like Moses came down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments or to deal with the Israelites dancing around a golden calf or whatever it was that took place. Over and over again, Matthew makes this connection that Jesus is a bit like, but better than, Moses. And then in chapter 4, Jesus confronts the world power of his day. Not Caesar. In the wilderness, he comes face to face with Satan himself. Faces temptations. Passes them. Defeats the enemy. And from that moment on, the gospel changes where now it seems as though Jesus has a right to announce that his kingdom has come. He's defeated. He's challenged, confronted, and defeated the current ruler of the world. And now as a result of that, he's saying, my kingdom is here. And so in 5, 6, and 7, in a lot better than current politicians do, Jesus lays out his manifesto of the kingdom of God. This is what this kingdom is going to look like. This is what it's going to be like. A kingdom not based so much on how we feel, but a kingdom based on what we do. Raising the standard, calling us to be the images of God that he created us to be, full of generosity and love and kindness in extravagant ways. 
And then the gospel moves on from this announcement of the kingdom to in 8, 9, and 10, we see sets of kind of three healing experiences, three miracles, followed by a challenge that following Jesus costs everything, followed by another three miracles, followed by another challenge that the cost of Jesus costs, following Jesus costs everything, followed by another three miracles, as if Matthew is trying to say to us, look, in the kingdom of God, this is what it looks like, healing, restoration, freedom. But if you want a part of that, you're going to need to give everything to Jesus. It comes, at a, it comes at a cost. Following Jesus isn't necessarily easy. It requires sacrifice. It requires a, a challenge to each of us. And then Matthew moves on from there and starts to explore people's reactions and responses to this kingdom of God that Jesus is establishing in 10, 11, and 12, and 13. And Jesus responds to their responses through his parables. So one of the parables that we'll find in in chapter 13 is the parable of the mustard seed, where Jesus says the kingdom of God is a bit like a mustard seed that although it's small, when it's planted in the ground, it grows into this tree that uh, loads of birds can perch on. And these parables, these short little stories, were Jesus commentating on the way people were responding to his kingdom, the way that people were refusing to acknowledge that he was the king and that God was bringing about people's rescue, or the way that you know, tax collectors and sinners and, and the people on the edge of society were accepting it and joining in and becoming a part of this. And then we move into the current section in Matthew from 14 to about 20, where Matthew seems to take head on this whole thing about expectations. What did people expect of Jesus? His disciples, right to the end, had a huge expectation that Jesus, as the Messiah, was going to free them from Rome. That he was somehow going to defeat the Romans and stop them from being the conquerors and the, uh, the oppressors of their day. That, that they were somehow going to be their own free nation again. And so Jesus challenges those expectations and those assumptions through his teaching, through his actions. Expectations about Israel being the only ones that were to be saved. Jesus challenges it, confronts it, both through his actions and through his teachings. And that's what we have here in this story is is a continuation of this process where Matthew is trying to get us to ask the question, what do we expect the kingdom of God to be able to do? What do his disciples expect it to do? Because way back um, earlier in, in the gospel, Jesus had sent out his disciples into towns and villages and said, heal the sick, cast out demons. And yet here his disciples are face to face with this poor boy who, you know, it says that, that it's, this boy's having seizures. But it, his father's recognizing it's not just any seizures. But these seizures are throwing him into fire and water. There's something much more malicious about it than that. I mean, I've, we've got two people in our church who have seizures on a fairly regular basis. One of them almost every time that they're with us. And uh, watching somebody have a seizure is a really horrific thing. Something that I, despite having seen dozens and dozens and dozens of times, I, I don't think you really get used to it, seeing somebody go through that experience. And yet, you wouldn't watch it and go, you know, somebody is maliciously attacking this person. You, you, see, you see that it has the sickness and the illness that it is. And yet this father realizes that what's happening to this boy is more than that. It's more than that. I mean, I can imagine if this boy's been thrown into the fire, he must be, you know, he didn't have modern medicine. He must be covered 
and wounds and scars and burns and all sorts of things. This boy must have been in a really rough state. And they bring him to the disciples. And the disciples assumedly pray, assumedly speak with authority, and nothing changes. And you can sense Jesus' frustration as he comes down off the mountain from this transfiguration. Sense his frustration. And, you know, how long do I have to be with you? You unbelieving, the word there kind of means somebody who doesn't trust. And the word perverse, it kind of means you've been distorted from the path. You've turned away from the, the way that you were meant to go. So Jesus is kind of saying, look, how long are you going to be so untrusting? Walk the path that you're not meant to walk. How long are your expectations of me? Going to miss the mark. The expectations of what this kingdom is actually able to accomplish. What do you expect the kingdom of God to be able to accomplish in your life? I wonder what Jesus' response to us would be as we hand him another problem, another difficulty, another thing that we haven't really felt like we've had the authority to deal with. I wonder what his response to us would be. What do we expect the kingdom of God to do? Probably around about a year ago, maybe a little bit more, um, I invited somebody from Exeter who uh, runs a kind of healing on the streets ministry in Exeter to come and speak to my swim trainees about praying for people and about the miraculous. And he's an incredible guy, and, and him and his church every Saturday go out on the streets in Exeter and pray for people, pray for prophetic words for them, um, that God would kind of share something with them that only they would know to open up a conversation about him. Uh, they pray for healing, and every week they see the most dramatic stories of, of people connecting and engaging with God, and it, it really is wonderful. So I invited him to come to speak to my youth work trainees about a year ago, and we had this great morning where he really just challenged and encouraged us to, to believe more and to believe that this kingdom actually is here and it, it is it, it does change things and it, we do have access to it and it can make a difference in people's lives. Later that evening, I was having a text conversation with a young woman that I support who is struggling uh, very badly. And as the text conversation continued, I began to realize that I, th- I thought she had probably done something to hurt herself. And so we kind of kept probing and, and I kind of kept gently trying to figure out what it was that was going on and. Until eventually she revealed to me that she'd taken an overdose of Oromor. And I'm quite used to this young woman taking overdoses. It's quite a common thing. Um, At least it was at that stage, particularly with paracetamol and things. But they were never life-threatening. And as I'm texting and Googling away um, on my tablet, I suddenly realize that this time she's actually taken something that will end her life if she doesn't get help. So I quickly phone 999 and have that conversation with dispatch, getting the paramedics out, and then I get back um, and I phone her, thinking, well, I don't know how long it's going to take the ambulance to get there, but I'd rather she wasn't alone right now. Um, She was obviously feeling quite scared about what she had done and and what happened. And as I was talking to her on the phone, just trying to keep things upbeat, she was very drowsy and and kind of barely there. I'm remembering all of that challenge from that, that very morning about, you know, this kingdom of God is here and we need to believe it and use it as a resource and, and, and have that authority. And so as I was praying, as I was talking to her on the phone, I said, look, I'm just going to, I'm just going to pray with you now. And I just simply just in prayer, just said, you know, or more if I command you to leave her body. 
And the sound of vomit has never sounded such a relief. Where literally as I was praying, she just started being sick. Masses of mount. Uh, paramedics got there. It took them about 20 minutes. Um, and took her off to hospital. And she was okay. At least physically. The, the Ormorph didn't affect her body in any ways that it should have. Um, and God quite clearly had intervened and rescued her. What do we expect the kingdom of God to do? Is that, you know, does that feel like something that is out of the ordinary of our existence? Does it feel like this is something that you know, only happens once in a while? Or does it feel like this is the kingdom of God? And part of the problem, and I'm going to open up a bit of a can of worms here for a moment, but part of the problem that we have here is our understanding of the kingdom of God itself. You see, there's a guy called Plato. Some of you might have heard of him. Many, many, many years ago, before I was alive, definitely, Plato wrote some things that we now call dualism, where he talks about how there is kind of a physical reality to life and a spiritual reality to life. And he talked about how uh, ultimately our aim is to leave the physical behind and, and fully embrace the spiritual. And it was from Plato that Augustine got the idea, a Christian that would live a few centuries later, that when a person dies, their soul leaves the physical, the spiritual part of a human being leaves them and goes to heaven or somewhere else and and, and goes into this fully spiritual world. And so Augustine, believing that Plato in this dualism was a bit of a prophet, pulled all of his teachings into his own. And so Augustine had an incredible amount of Platonism within his theology and within his beliefs. And the church really admired and respected Augustine. So they took Augustine's teachings and pulled them into their understandings and beliefs. Till eventually, fast forward a few centuries later, where in most Western churches around the world, it is commonplace for us to assume that there is a physical part to our being and a spiritual part to our being, and one day the spiritual leaves the physical and goes off to heaven somewhere, when actually... You won't find that in Scripture. There isn't any mention in Scripture about our souls separating and and leaving one half behind. Instead, the Scripture wholly puts everything behind resurrection. And in order to be resurrected, you have to be dead. And that a resurrection is coming. and, And Jesus on the cross turns to the thief and says, Today you will be with me in paradise. And the word for paradise he uses is actually a word that refers to a temporary place of rest. Because remember, Jesus is saying, today you will be with me in paradise. Not after I've resurrected. Today, there's, there's this place and space of rest while we await for the resurrection of God to happen. And we could have a very long conversation about what that looks like. But I think that's really important for us to just me to open that can of worms just a little bit this morning. Because part of what that platonic idea of dualism has brought in is we see the kingdom of God as something that's over there. Something that we travel to once we've died. Something that's not here, but there. Not now, but later. Where over and over again, Jesus is walking through the gospel saying, the kingdom of God is here. It is in your midst. And over and over again, the New Testament writers try to get us to grasp this idea that somehow the current worldly age and God's kingdom, they're overlapping And that somehow God's future promises within God's kingdom become our present 
reality that somehow that rescue, that restoration, that healing, that resurrection that is promised to us in the future is actually a part of what God wants us to engage with now. And partly because of some of those bad eschatology where we think it's, we, we die and we leave here, we leave the earthly, rather than realizing that all of Scripture talks about heaven being here, of the earth being restored and put right, of heaven coming down to earth, this being the place where we spend eternity. Not some far-off, other-dimension sort of world. But because of some of those theological things, We don't really see the kingdom of God as being alive and active here. We think it's something we're still waiting for. And so just like Matthew was challenging those first century Jews, what do you expect God's kingdom of God to do? To be. Because if there is the kingdom of God is here, then there is a way to engage with it. There is a way to see more of it. Actually, I believe church is meant to be one of the few spaces on earth where the fullness of the kingdom of God can be known. Where we can fully enter the presence and reality of God as we give our lives to each other, as we sacrifice and are generous and are loving, as we put each other above ourselves, somehow in this space, powered by the Spirit of God, we can actually experience His kingdom. Not as just a foretaste of what's to come, although that's certainly true because there is even more to come but also because it is our present reality. Jesus is not king later, he's king now. His kingdom has been established and it is here. And yes, there are forces opposing it. Yes, there's all sorts of things that have not yet been put right. But that doesn't make him any less king. And that doesn't mean that we can stand before his throne and call on his kingship and his authority and his power any less. Just because it's challenged doesn't mean it's not true. What do we expect the kingdom of God to do? In Romans chapter 8, Paul says this lovely little thing where he says that all of creation is waiting in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. You see, part of what this dualism does is it thinks that all of creation is waiting for the kingdom of God to come. All of creation is waiting for this future promise to be somehow brought in. We're waiting for Armageddon or waiting for a rapture or waiting for some sort of other event not connected to us. When actually Paul says in Romans 8, creation is waiting for God's children to be revealed. His creation is waiting for us to be the people God made us to be. For us to, as it says in Daniel's or says in Philippians, shine like stars. For us to be the images of God living out the fullness of what it was that God has done for us and and embodying that and sharing that and bringing that power and authority and rescue and healing to this hurting world around us. Because you see, creation wasn't just built to be a play space. It was built to be a temple. This world was built to be a temple where people worship God. God. And we were meant to be the statues within the temple, showing the world who this God is that we worship. We're we're meant to be the ones that declare him, that share him, that demonstrate him, that reveal him. And until we return to being those image bearers, we will wake up and see another horrible story on the news. And another thing will go wrong in our families or up the street. Because this world is eagerly waiting 
for us to be who God created and died and rose again for us to be. Waiting for us to to fulfill and reach into. And, And so... In that previous story in the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, many people see Jesus shining and being transfigured on the mountain as if his divinity, his godness was being revealed. But in Daniel 12 and Paul in Philippians 2 both talk about how actually it's us as people that shine like stars when we fulfill what it is that God has made us to do. And so I'd kind of counter and perhaps tentatively argue that Perhaps Jesus wasn't so much as revealing his divinity, but fulfilling his humanity. As he shines like a star on the top of that mountain. It's actually, interestingly enough, the place where his divinity is most known is when he's hanging on a cross. It's there that the centurion goes, surely he is the son of God. As he suffers and dies, his divinity is known. In a way, as he stands on that mountain and shines like a star, It's his humanity we see. What do you expect? What do you expect the kingdom of God to do in your life? What do you expect it to be able to change? What are you looking for it to bring, to heal, to restore, to rescue? Or is it just some far-off, fantastical idea that you're hoping might be true one day and, and you're hoping might come into all its fullness when you finally slip away from this earth? Is it really just a future hope? Or can it make a difference to here and now? Because I think in this passage, as we rub shoulders with Jesus and rub shoulders with his frustration in this moment, we're left believing that he believes it should be impacting the here and now. Some versions of Matthew, older manuscripts, and and Mark's version of this account have that at the end of that little bit where Jesus is talking about um, the mustard seed and nothing will be impossible, that he also adds that, you know, uh, some of this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. That there is a way things work in this kingdom. There's a, a way to connect. There's a way to engage. There's a way to call on these kingdom powers of healing and freedom and rescue. That doesn't mean necessarily that that every time we pray, that doesn't mean necessarily that every time we fast, that God's going to say yes and we're going to see that miracle immediately. But Jesus invites us to engage with it. Invites us to not just sit back and go, I'm powerless. I can't do anything. God, would you please just, you know, bring heaven, destroy all this, get rid of all this. He says, no. I'm already king. Can we act like it? Can we pray like it? Can we fast like it? Can we interact with a hurting world around us as if he really is? And that little bit where Jesus says, you know, you have little faith and you just need faith as small as a mustard seed. Um, The Greek word for faith there, pistos, it, it can be translated as both faith and faithfulness, which I think is quite interesting. Because faith implies something a little bit more um, spiritual, a little bit more mental, a little bit more something that's happening in our hearts. Whereas faithfulness implies a little bit more action, a little bit more of, you know, having to do something. And I quite like the thought that perhaps Jesus was also saying here, a little bit of faithfulness 
can go a long way in the kingdom of God. A little bit of faithfulness. A little bit of sticking to my path. A little bit of believing in what this kingdom can do. And I can grow a tree. From the tiniest of seeds, I can grow a tree that a whole load of things can perch on. What could you be faithful in today? This week? Where could you plant a seed of faithfulness? Believing that in the kingdom of God that's present, it can grow something well beyond your means. Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's calling up somebody today and saying sorry. And trying to make amends, even though it's felt like that relationship has been dead for far too long. Maybe today, a seed of faithfulness. Believing that in the kingdom of God, nothing is lost forever. Maybe a seed of faithfulness planted could just possibly grow into something better. Maybe it's that daring to get on your knees again and pray for the 5,000th time. God, would you heal my friend, my neighbor, my son, my wife, whoever it is, God, would you rescue them? Maybe today that seed of faithfulness planted believing that the kingdom of God is not just a fanciful idea. It's a present reality. Maybe it's, maybe it's the sharing of God's good news. Maybe again it's that friend or neighbor or family member or work colleague that perhaps you felt a bit intimidated, perhaps there hasn't been the right opportunity to, but maybe this week you could take that seed of faithfulness Believing that Jesus says, go and share the gospel. Preach my good news. Believing Paul's words that he says, hearing the message of Christ is a catalyst for faith. It's where it comes from. Maybe this week, you could take that tiny seed of faithfulness and tell someone about Jesus. And believe that in the kingdom of God, that tiny seed can grow into a whole new life. What do we expect the kingdom of God to do? I think that's what Jesus challenges us with here. I think that's the challenge I want to leave us with. What does it challenge us to do? What do we expect it to do? And what seed of faithfulness could we plant in someone's life this week? Maybe even today. Let's pray.